This is Space Time, Series 23, Episode 30, for broadcast on the 8th of April, 2020. Coming up on Space Time, the best evidence yet for intermediate-sized black holes, a new planetary defense mission to smash an asteroid, and the first launch for the new United States Space Force. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Astronomers have their best evidence yet for the existence of intermediate-sized black holes, a long-sought-after missing link in black hole observations. Black holes are the most intense gravity wells in the universe, regions of infinite density in zero volume, where the gravitational pull is so strong, nothing, not even light, can escape. Stars, planets, gas clouds and other matter are attracted to a black hole by its intense gravity, swirling around the black hole in an accretion disk like water around the drain hole in the sink. Material in the accretion disk is crushed, stretched and ripped apart at the subatomic level, releasing vast amounts of energy at billions of degrees, before passing a point of no return called the event horizon. Once inside the event horizon, escape velocity becomes greater than the speed of light. And since nothing can travel faster than the speed of light, nothing, not even light, can escape a black hole. Here, matter is spaghettified, as it falls forever towards the singularity, a place where the laws of physics, as science understands them, break down. Stellar mass black holes are formed by the death of some of the most massive stars in the universe through powerful supernova explosions, or through even more powerful hypernova events caused by the merger of neutron stars. Then there are supermassive black holes which are millions to billions of times larger and are found at the centres of most, if not all, galaxies. But there's a blaring gap in these observations, with a failure to find any intermediate-sized black holes, filling the space between stellar-mass ones and the supermassive ones. Now, new data from NASA's Hubble Space Telescope has identified what appears to be a true intermediate-sized black hole, one more than 50,000 times the mass of the Sun, located deep inside a dense star cluster. The Hubble data, reported on the pre-pressed physics website archive.org, follows on from initial observations obtained from NASA's Chandra X-ray Observatory and the European Space Agency's XMM-Newton X-ray Space Telescope. Chandra and Newton initially detected a powerful flare of X-rays in 2006, but it wasn't clear as to whether this originated from inside or outside of our galaxy. Still, the X-ray observations allowed the authors to understand the total energy output of the event, which suggested that it was a star being torn apart by a black hole. And the X-ray glow from the shredded star allowed astronomers to estimate the black hole's mass. So Hubble was pointed at the X-ray source to try and resolve its precise location. Deep, high-resolution imaging confirmed that the X-ray source, named 3XMMJ215022.4-055108, didn't originate in our galaxy. And surprisingly, it didn't emanate from the centre of another galaxy, where supermassive black holes normally reside. Instead, it originated in a distant, dense star cluster on the outskirts of a galaxy, just the sort of place astronomers expected to find an intermediate-mass black hole. That's because previous Hubble research had shown that the more massive the galaxy, the more massive its black hole. 
The study's lead author, Darchen Lin, from the University of New Hampshire, says the new results suggest that the star cluster hosting this intermediate-mass black hole may be the stripped-down core of a small dwarf galaxy that's been gravitationally entirely disrupted by its close interactions with its current larger galaxy neighbour. Confirming one intermediate-mass black hole raises the possibility of others lurking out there, undetected in the dark, just waiting for a passing star to get too close to provide scientists with another calling card. This is Space Time. Still to come, a new planetary defence mission to smash an asteroid. And later in the science report, claims that some COVID-19 patients who appear to have been cleared of the virus may actually still be harbouring it. All that and much more, still to come, on Space Time. The European Space Agency and NASA are teaming up for a mission to smash into an asteroid as part of a planetary defence test. The Asteroid Impact and Deflection Assessment, or AIDA, mission will use a pair of spacecraft to see how hard it would be to deflect an asteroid on a collision course with the Earth simply by crashing into it. NASA will provide the impactor, called the Double Asteroid Redirection Test, or DART, which is slated to launch in 2021 and will crash into a small moon orbiting the asteroid 65803 Didymos the following year. Meanwhile, the European Space Agency will provide the HERA spacecraft, which will launch five years after DART and monitor the effects of the impact, studying the impact crater and how the impact affected the orbit of the moon around Didymos and the movement of Didymos itself. 65803 Didymos is a binary asteroid system, consisting of an 800-metre-wide primary asteroid orbited about 1.1 kilometres away by a small 163-metre-wide moon called Didymos B. The system is classified both as a potentially hazardous asteroid and a near-Earth object of both the Apollo and AMOR groups. Discovered by the University of Arizona Space Watch program in 1996, the system was named Didymos, which is Greek for twin, due to its binary nature. It's classified as an X or possibly K-type asteroid because little is known about its composition. X-type asteroids have spectra showing signatures for carbonaceous chondrites, iron, nickel, feldspar, enstatite and forsterite, while K-type asteroids are relatively featureless, with spectra showing signs of silica. The DART spacecraft is basically a 500kg impactor, equipped with a single reconnaissance and asteroid camera that will be used to autonomously guide the spacecraft into Didymos B at a speed of 6.25km per second. And that impact should be enough to cause a small change in the orbit of Didymos B, which over time should result in a more significant change in the mutual orbits of both Didymos and its moon, but only a minimal change in the heliocentric orbit of the system. The mission will provide data on the size of the momentum transferred by the impact, as well as the size of the crater it forms, and on how the moon's porosity and strength affect the impact. DART will also carry a small CubeSat called Lycia, which will be released prior to the impact to image the collision. As for the other part of this mission, the European Space Agency's HERA spacecraft, well, its scientific payloads are still being worked out, but are likely to include an asteroid framing camera to obtain information on the dynamics and physical characteristics of the binary asteroid, as well as a LiDAR laser altimeter to measure the shapes of the two bodies and constrain the mass of the asteroid's moon, and a thermal imager. Also on the list are two six-unit CubeSats, an asteroid prospection explorer called Apex, which will undertake spectral imaging and magnetic observations and attempt a landing on the asteroid surface for close-up data, and Juventus, which will carry a camera and a low-frequency radar for determining the internal structure of Diddy Moon. Juventus will operate for up to six months, making observations of Diddy Moon before attempting a landing on the surface to obtain more data. 
Mission managers are also considering equipping HERA with a small impactor, similar to that used by Japan on its Hayabusa 2 asteroid sample return mission. Performing another impact after the DART mission would allow scientists to compare the effects posed by two collisions of different nature on the same asteroid. This report from ESA TV. HERA is going to show us things no one's ever seen before. This ESA mission will be humanity's first ever spacecraft to visit a double asteroid, Didymos. This asteroid is typical of the thousands that pose an impact risk to our planet. Imagine a mountain in the sky with another rock about the size of the Great Pyramid swinging around it. That's Didymos. And just the seemingly tiny moon would be big enough to destroy a city if it were to collide with the Earth. But we're going to find out if it's possible to deflect it. This is going to be really, really hard. Aiming at a 160 meter wide target across millions of kilometers of void. Could we stop an asteroid hitting planet Earth? The dinosaurs couldn't, but we humans have the benefit of knowledge and science on our side. HERA is led by a multinational team of scientists and engineers, humanity's makers and doers. Right now, all we have is many years of research and theories, but HERA will revolutionize our understanding of asteroids and how to protect ourselves from them. First, NASA will slam its DART spacecraft into the smaller asteroid at more than six kilometers a second. Then ESA comes in. HERA will map the impact crater left by DART and measure the asteroid's mass. Knowing this mass is key to determining what's inside and knowing for certain whether we would be able to deflect it. Next come our briefcase-sized CubeSats. If you think of HERA like an aeroplane, then CubeSats will operate more like drones, able to take more risks flying closer to the asteroid, carrying state-of-the-art science instruments, eventually touching down. The scale of this experiment is huge. One day, these results could be crucial for saving our planet. HERA's up-close observations after DART's impact will help prove whether asteroids can be deflected prove whether this is an effective planetary defense technique so that if an asteroid ever poses a real threat to Earth, we'll be ready. New measurements by NASA's New Horizons spacecraft has confirmed earlier data showing that the solar wind, the supersonic stream of charged particles emitted by the Sun, slows down the further away it gets. The findings, reported in the Astrophysical Journal, are providing important new insights into some of the furthest reaches of space ever explored. Previously, only the 1970s vintage Pioneers 10 and 11 and Voyagers 1 and 2 spacecraft have explored the outer solar system and the furthest reaches of the heliosphere, the bubble of the Sun's atmosphere which encompasses our entire solar system. But now, New Horizons is doing virtually the same thing, but using far more modern and advanced scientific instruments. The study's lead author, Heather Elliott from the Southwest Research Institute in Boulder, Colorado, says the sun's influence on the space environment extends well beyond the outer planets, and New Horizons is showing science new aspects of how that environment changes with distance. 
New Horizons is collecting detailed daily measurements of the solar wind, which is composed primarily of ionized hydrogen, free electrons and protons, as well as helium nuclei, known as alpha particles, and trace amounts of heavy ions and atomic nuclei, including carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, neon, magnesium, silicon, sulfur and iron, ripped apart by the extreme million-degree temperatures of the Sun's outer atmosphere, the corona. The spacecraft's also collecting data on other key particles called interstellar pickup ions in the outer heliosphere. Interstellar pickup ions are created when neutral material from interstellar space enters the solar system and becomes ionized by light from the sun or by charge exchange interactions with solar wind ions. As the solar wind moves further from the sun, it encounters an increasing amount of material from interstellar space. When interstellar material is ionized, the solar wind picks up that material, and researchers theorized slows and heats in response. And New Horizons has now detected and confirmed this predicted effect. The authors compared New Horizons solar wind speed measurements from 21 to 42 astronomical units out from the Sun. The speeds measured at just one astronomical unit from the Sun, recorded by both the Advanced Composition Explorer or ACE spacecraft and the Solar Terrestrial Relations Observatory or STEREO spacecraft. An astronomical unit is the average distance between the Sun and the Earth, roughly 150 million kilometres, or 8.3 light minutes. The authors found that around 21 astronomical units, it appeared New Horizons could be detecting the slowing of the solar wind in response to picking up interstellar material. However, once New Horizons travelled beyond Pluto, between 33 and 42 astronomical units out, the solar wind was measured at 6-7% slower than at one astronomical unit out, confirming the effect. In addition to confirming the slowing of the solar wind at great distances, the change in the solar wind temperature and density could also provide a means to estimate when New Horizons will join the Voyager spacecraft on the other side of the termination shock, the boundary marking where the solar wind slows to lessen the speed of sound as it approaches the interstellar medium. Voyager 1 crossed the termination shock back in 2004 at some 94 astronomical units out, followed by Voyager 2 in 2007 at 84 astronomical units. Now, based on the current lower levels of solar activity and lower solar wind pressures, the termination shocks expected to have moved closer to the Sun since the Voyager crossings. Extrapolating current trends in the New Horizons measurements also indicates that the termination shock might now be closer than where it was when it was intersected by the Voyagers. Mind you, don't hold your breath. At the very earliest, New Horizons won't reach the termination shock until the mid-2020s. As solar cycle activity increases, the increased pressure is likely to expand the heliosphere. And this could push the termination shock back out to the 84 to 94 astronomical unit range found by the Voyager spacecraft before New Horizons has time to reach it. New Horizons' journey through the outer heliosphere contrasts that of the Voyagers, because the current solar cycle is quite mild compared to the very active solar cycle the Voyagers experienced in the outer heliosphere. As well as measuring the solar wind, New Horizons also measures the low fluxes of interstellar pickup ions, both with unprecedented time resolution and extensive spatial coverage. So New Horizons is on course to become the first spacecraft to measure both the solar wind and interstellar pickup ions in the termination shock. This is Space Time. Still to come, the first launch of a new rocket for the United States Space Force. And later in the science report, while they can't pick out precise numbers, it seems animals can comprehend that more is, well, more. All that and much more, still to come on Space Time. Okay, let's take a break from our show for a word from our sponsor, ExpressVPN, rated number one by TechRadar. 
You may be wondering why you need a virtual private network. Well, it's in the name. It's all about privacy. Do you really want big brother tech companies, hackers, governments, and who knows who else snooping in on your online activities? Now, you might not have anything to hide, but it's still really creepy, and it could be dangerous for you and those you care about. Also, how often do you run across a website and you want to get information from it, but you find out that they're geo-blocked? It's all very frustrating, and it's becoming an increasing problem. And that's where ExpressVPN can help you. ExpressVPN's a simple and efficient way to protect your online privacy. It's internet without borders from the world's leading VPN provider. So, protect your online privacy today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com space. That's tryexpressvpn.com space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com space to learn more. And of course, you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. That's tryexpressvpn.com space. And now, it's back to our show. You're listening to Space Time with Stuart Gary. The United Launch Alliance has carried out its first mission for the newly constituted United States Space Force, launching the sixth Advanced Extremely High Frequency, or AEHF, satellite aboard an Atlas V rocket. The flight from Space Launch Complex 41 at the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Florida used the most powerful 551 version of the Atlas V to carry the 6,168kg spacecraft into geosynchronous orbit. The extra power was needed to deliver the new satellite into a far higher perigee, the lowest point in its transfer orbit. FTS armed. The launch vehicle, payload, ground systems, and eastern range are go for launch. Or range status. Range green. ETS reboot for launch. Roger. Status check. Go Atlas. Go Centaur. Go AEHF-6. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2. We have ignition and liftoff of the United Launch Alliance Atlas V rocket with AEHF-6 on the first mission for the United States Space Force. Passing 15 seconds from the flight, TU has gone to close the control. The RD-180 is throttling down to 67% thrust as expected. Engine response looks good. Passing 30 seconds into flight, 35 seconds into flight, Mach 1, Atlas 5 is now supersonic. Engine operating parameters look nominal. Passing 45 seconds into flight, passing through max Q, maximum dynamic pressure. The RD-180 is throttling back up to 94% as expected. Engine response looks good. Coming up on one minute into flight, SRB chamber pressures remain nominal at this time. Vehicle is uh, 10 miles in altitude, uh, six miles downrange, traveling at 2,300 miles per hour. Standing by for SRB sh- burnout shortly, and we have burnout on all five SRBs. The RD-180 is being throttled back up to full thrust following SRB burnout. Standing by for SRB jettison shortly, and we have jettison of all five SRBs. The vehicle has gone to closed loop guidance. The RD-180 uh, pump speed and fuel injector pressures remain nominal. The vehicle is now 40 miles in altitude, uh, 56 miles downrange, traveling at 5,000 miles per hour. And the RD-180 is now throttling to maintain a constant 2.5 G acceleration, and the Centaur Reaction Control System is now pressurizing to flight levels. And the vehicle is now 65 miles in altitude, 140 miles downrange, traveling at 7,500 miles per hour. Standing by for payload fairing jettison shortly. And we have good indication of payload fairing jettison. 
and we have Centaur forward load reactor deck jettison. Nearity 180 is throttling back up to 95% thrust as expected. Uh, engine response continues to look good, and the RD-180 is now throttling to maintain a constant 4.6G acceleration limit, and we have beginning of the boost phase chill down for on the RL-10 to thermally condition the second stage engine for operation. Standing by for PICO shortly. We have the end of boost phase chill down, and we have BICO booster engine cutoff, and we have good Atlas Centaur separation. We have indication of pre-start on the RL-10, standing by for MES-1, and we have ignition on the RL-10, seeing good response from RL-10 operating parameters and Centaur body rates at the beginning of the burn. Uh, congratulations to the Aerojet Rocketdyne team, RL-10 team, as today's mission marks the flight of the 500th production RL-10 engine. This is Atlas Mission Control at T plus 5 minutes, 9 seconds. Jesse Gonzalez just confirmed the successful completion of the early phase of today's flight, and all systems continue to operate nominally. The mission is currently in the first of three Centaur engine burns. The Lockheed Martin built spacecraft is designed to provide survivable, protected, highly secure, and jam-proof extremely high and super high frequency global communications for high-priority military ground, sea, and air assets of the United States, Australia, Great Britain, Canada, and the Netherlands. The AEHF satellites are designed to augment and eventually replace the older Milstar Military Strategic and Tactical Relay Satellite Network. The new birds use multiple narrow spot beams directed towards the ground to relay communications. And crosslinks between the six satellites allow them to relay communications directly between one another rather than going through ground stations. They're also using frequency hopping radio technology as well as phased array antennas that can adapt their radiation patterns in order to block out potential sources of jamming. The mission also carried a small secondary payload, which was deployed 31 minutes after launch following the second burn of the Centaur upper stage engine. This secondary payload, named TDO-2, is based around a suitcase-sized 12-unit CubeSat platform and carries multiple U.S. government payloads, providing optical calibration and satellite laser ranging capabilities in support of space domain awareness. A similar secondary payload, named TDO-1, was deployed during the launch of the AHF-5 satellite on the previous Atlas V launch back in August 2019. This flight also marked the 83rd launch of an Atlas V rocket and the 11th for the Atlas V in its 551 configuration. And time now to take a brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with the Science Report. A new study warns that some COVID-19 patients who appear to have cleared the virus based on throat swabs may actually still be harbouring it in their saliva and faecal matter. The study, reported in the Annals of Internal Medicine, is based on 133 COVID-19 patients admitted to a Beijing hospital between January the 20th and February the 27th. Researchers identified 22 patients with saliva or faecal samples that tested positive for the virus despite negative throat swabs. In fact, the virus was detected in saliva for up to 39 days after throat swabs were negative. It's been revealed that during the time Beijing was still covering up the true extent of the COVID-19 virus, a Chinese government-owned property development company, Greenland Group, ordered its staff to stop their normal duties and instead visit stores and bulk suppliers across Australia, buying up more than 82 tonnes of drugs and medical supplies, which were then sent to China. Container loads of hand sanitizers, antibacterial wipes, thermometers, as well as some 3 million protective face masks, half a million pairs of surgical gloves, and 700,000 hazmat biosuits were also purchased in bulk and then shipped over to China, leaving Australia short of supplies once news of the virus outbreak was finally revealed. 
And there have been reports that Beijing was undertaking similar operations through a number of Chinese companies in other countries, including Canada and Turkey. Scientists reviewing the history of the Antarctic ice sheets have noted that portions of the East and West Antarctic ice sheets are losing mass at unprecedented rates as they're increasingly being exposed to warming oceans. A report in the journal Science warns that the increased sea temperatures being caused by global warming could potentially contribute to global sea level rise. Meanwhile, another study in the series points out that the Antarctic ice melt will continue to affect the surrounding ocean currents and will amplify ice loss, which in a third review was found to already be accelerating and will continue to speed up over the next few decades. Well, while they can't pick up precise numbers, it seems animals can comprehend that more is, well, more. A German neurobiologist explored the current literature on the topic, saying that the so-called numerical competence is found in almost every branch of the tree of life. Honeybees can remember landmarks on their way to the hive, wolves know that they're more likely to hunt successfully with just the right number of wolves in their pack, and even female frogs choose the males that sing the most chucks in their mating calls. The findings, reported in the journal Trends in Ecology and Evolution, suggest that more research needs to be done to fully understand how numerical competence plays a role in a species' chance of survival. Well, there's been a lot of talk lately about the use of terms like Chinese virus, Chinese coronavirus, Wuhan virus and Wuhan coronavirus to describe COVID-19. Well, the simple fact is, these terms have been common usage in the media ever since COVID-19 hit the headlines. And the media was still happily using these terms without anyone complaining until just a couple of weeks ago. In fact, some of our most woke media and news organisations are on the record having used the terms, including CNN, The New York Times, The Washington Post, The BBC, both NBC and CNBC, BuzzFeed, The Los Angeles Times, Al Jazeera, Bloomberg... Business Insider, The Economist, Foreign Policy, Kaiser Health News, NPR National Public Radio, The Journal Nature, USA Today, and even The Wall Street Journal. Don't believe me? Listen to this. The first U.S. case of Chinese coronavirus. Concern is growing this morning over an outbreak of a new SARS-like virus in China. At least six people have died from the Wuhan coronavirus. The Chinese coronavirus. The Wuhan coronavirus. Uh, this is coming as the Chinese coronavirus. The Wuhan coronavirus. China's coronavirus outbreak. The 34-year-old ophthalmologist diagnosed Saturday with the Wuhan coronavirus. China's coronavirus. Outbreak anxiety. The death toll nearly doubles in China's coronavirus outbreak. The Wuhan virus. Just how bad is China's coronavirus crisis? The Wuhan coronavirus. China's coronavirus outbreak. What more can you tell us about the similarities or differences between SARS and the Wuhan coronavirus. China's coronavirus. The Wuhan coronavirus. China's coronavirus outbreak. The Wuhan coronavirus in China. China's coronavirus. The Wuhan uh, coronavirus. China's coronavirus. The Wuhan coronavirus. From the Wuhan uh, coronavirus. Wuhan coronavirus. China's coronavirus. Fears continue to grow over the outbreak of the Wuhan coronavirus. Wuhan coronavirus. The Wuhan coronavirus. Concerns about the China uh, coronavirus. The Wuhan coronavirus. We have new information about how the Wuhan coronavirus is spread. China's coronavirus outbreak. China's coronavirus. China's coronavirus. China's coronavirus. And they all felt very work using it. After all, the Zika virus was named after its point of origin in the Zika forest of Uganda, 
The Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, MERS, originated in the Middle East. The Ebola virus was named after the Ebola or Black River located near a major outbreak in the Congo. Lassa fever emerged in the town of Lassa in Nigeria. Ross River virus was named after a river in northern Queensland. And the 1968 flu pandemic was known as the Hong Kong flu because it spread globally from that part of China. Then there's Bolivian hemorrhagic fever, Marburg virus, West Nile virus, the Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever virus, and of course German measles. The list goes on. Now the big exception of this rule is the Spanish flu, which actually originated in Kansas. It was only named the Spanish flu because World War I was happening at the time, and neither side wanted to admit that their soldiers were suffering from the virus. And Spain, which was neutral, were the only ones to be openly talking about it. The claim that you shouldn't call it the Chinese virus because it's racist only began around mid-March as part of a propaganda campaign by the Chinese Communist Party to try and disassociate Beijing from its cover-up of the deadly virus during the early weeks of its spread. As part of the same campaign, a spokesman for the Chinese Foreign Ministry said that COVID-19 might have been deliberately spread by US soldiers who had visited China for a military athletic competition and that Beijing could block the exports of chemicals for medicines to the United States if America kept blaming China for the virus. And that triggered a sharp response from U.S. President Donald Trump. Why do you keep calling this the Chinese virus? There are reports of dozens of incidents of bias against Chinese Americans in this country. Your own aide, Secretary Azar, says he does not use this term. He says ethnicity does not cause the virus. Why do you keep using this? A lot of people say it's racist. It's not racist at all, no, not at all. It comes from China. That's why. It comes from China. I and want to be accurate. Yeah, please, John. I have great love uh, for all of the people from our country. But uh, as you know, China tried to say at one point, maybe they stopped now, that it was caused by American soldiers. That can't happen. It's not going to happen. Not as long as I'm president. Uh, it comes from China. And didn't the fertilizer hit the fan after that? The same media, who had themselves quite happily used exactly the same term because they believed it referred to a location rather than a person's heritage, were now hypocritically outraged. And of course, that's exactly what the Chinese Communist government wanted. Iconic, useful idiots pushing their propaganda and taking the focus off Beijing's actions. Interestingly, the term useful idiots is attributed to Vladimir Lenin. And the Chinese Communist Party was, of course, reorganized in 1923 along Leninist lines. And that's the show for now. Space Time is broadcast on Science Zone Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C., and through both iHeartRadio and on TuneIn Radio. Or you can subscribe and download Space Time as a free podcast through Apple, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, Audioboom, Podbeam, Android, Castbox, from SpaceTimeWithStuartGary.com, or from your favorite download podcast provider. You can help support the show and the work we do by visiting the Spacetime online shop and grabbing yourself a few goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to commercial-free double-episode versions of the show, as well as bonus audio content and other rewards. Just go to our Patreon page through SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com for all the details. If you want more space time, check out our blog, where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. 
Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word and in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at Stuart Gary on Twitter, at Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram, through our Spacetime YouTube channel, and on Facebook, just go to www.facebook.com slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 